1: Hello and welcome to an episode of the New Books and Gender Studies podcast, uh, part of the New Books Network. My name is Kyle McMillan, one of your co-hosts, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Andrew Yarrow. And we're going to talk about his new book called Man Out, Men on the Sidelines of American Life. Dr. Yarrow, how are you doing today?
0: Very good, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be on your show.
1: Yeah, and we're so glad to have you join us, and you have quite the illustrious background, so I want you to tell our listeners sort of a little bit about your background, but how that background sort of informed the decision to write this book in particular.
0: Sure. Um, I've had kind of an eclectic background that's toggled between uh, journalism, academia, and public policy. I was a reporter at the New York Times for many years. I've taught US history, uh, which I have a PhD in, at American University. And I've worked in a number of think tanks, as well as government, but think tanks in Washington, DC, from the Brookings Institution to the Progressive Policy Institute and some others. And uh, in terms of how I came to this topic, I really came to it in, from two very different angles. One, I've long studied issues relating to work and labor in America. And, you know, I had also worked at the Labor Department back in the Clinton administration. And, you know, I've long been noticing the... um a phenomenon of declining male labor force participation that you know the percentages of men who are in the workforce who actually have jobs has gone down pretty sharply uh, from about 88 percent to or actually uh, much higher well 88 it depends how you cut it 88 percent in the 50s to about 69% today, or if you look at 25 to 64-year-old men from, uh, you know, close to a hundred percent to about 82% today. So, you know, I asked myself as some other <laughs> labor economists are asking, what's going on with with these men not working? But the second angle was, was a very different one. Um, I happened to be talking with some divorced women and you know I kept hearing this a similar story over and over and these were generally middle class upper middle class women saying that their husbands or ex-husbands had uh, you know kind of stopped working you know weren't contributing weren't uh, doing anything with uh, child childcare or home care Kind of were hanging out in the basement, maybe online, maybe online gaming, maybe looking at pornography or whatever and um, you know this kind of story uh, it was surprising to me how often I heard that and how often I heard that as a reason for for divorce. Um, I mean I suppose a third piece is the rise of non marital childbearing. Which is now at uh, more than fifty percent of births to women under thirty or outside of marriage. So, um, raises the issue of kind of what happens to fathers, what happens to the mothers, what happens to children. So, kind of a long answer about the origins of the book. Well, it's a
1: very interesting book, and. Uh you know, you cover a lot of topics. And I think the first thing to go over is sort of, how did you write this book? Like, who who did you talk to? Uh, what were your methods to collecting all this information?
0: Right. Um, well, I interviewed several hundred men across the country, uh, in person, uh, some by phone. I also talked with a number of I call them practitioners, but uh, these practitioners range from, uh, you know, addiction therapists, internet addiction therapists, foreign addiction uh, therapists, uh, to U.S. Army recruiters, to um, uh, workforce development people. Uh, uh, you know across uh, across the board domestic violence people and also it did a lot of mining of data um, particularly uh, labor and economic data wage data uh mostly from the Bureau of Labor Statistics but also a lot of health data um, which i mean the national center for health statistics is one source the cdc but you know there are a lot of uh, good sources out there for for a lot of data for topics i talk uh, talk about in the book
1: so i guess uh, uh, the first question to start out with are is who are these men on the sidelines of american life and you know you kind of hinted at this but why is this happening
0: well I guess to the first part of your question of who they are, you know, we've heard a lot in the last two years about sort of Trumpian white male working class men. And, you know, they're certainly a part of this uh, phenomenon. But I look also at three other uh, populations millennial men who are. not doing, or many who are not doing well, uh, men over fifty-five, men many of whom are not doing well, and for, formerly incarcerated men, uh, which there are more than seventeen million of, uh, as a result of mass incarceration, and some of these categories overlap, but um, you know it's a big population that that I estimate that. At least a fifth of adult males, or about uh, 20 million or so, give or take. Um, and, you know, they're, uh, I call them men out in the sense that they're, you know, really out of the mainstream of American life in a number of ways. They're, Uh, often cut off from work, not working, uh, often disconnected from personal relationships, from family and children, um, civic and community life, and you know many of them are pretty angry. uh, Angry At government, uh, employers, uh, but also women, which you know is kind of scary when you see the amount of misogyny out there. But um, yeah, so it's it's a large large population with a lot of overlapping problems, and these many of these problems have tended to be siloed in the past. You know, people have looked at labor force issues by themselves or public health issues by themselves or, you know, issues of uh, mass incarceration by themselves. But I try to weave a narrative uh, that many of these phenomena are, are related.
1: Yeah, and I think you, you know, start to do that right away. Um, when you talk about, you know, you sort of call it the male non-working class, right? So, so who are included in this non-working class? And then you kind of have, you know, you talk about economic factors and cultural factors that sort of play into their, their non-working. So, so how does that picture come together?
0: Sure. Um, well, the male non-working class is huge, um, you know, as I say, about 18% of 25 to 64-year-old men are not working, and of course that excludes populations who would be would be working and are working over 64, and those under 25. And you know, for those under 25, they're uh, uh, so-called. Uh, young men and women who are neither in employment, education, or training, so that adds additional numbers and uh, you know and again, above sixty five and above adds additional numbers. and uh, men who are currently incarcerated are not included in that number, so that's another two million men. And men in the armed forces are also not included in that number. Uh, And, of course, they're working. But, uh, you know, they really range across, you know, pretty broad populations. Um, You know, we've heard a lot about um, kind of the industrial working class being... Essentially hollowed out by deindustrialization over the last few decades, um, that middle skill jobs have disappeared. That men, you know, suffered more in job loss from the Great Recession than women did. Um, but also, issue when you look at millennial men, for example, uh, there are only about seventy one percent of men. Uh, born between 1981 and 96 who have jobs, and, you know, this is much lower than prior generations, and you have the parallel phenomenon of a huge number, again, about a third of young men who are living at home with, with parents, with relatives, and you know we've heard a lot about you know boomerang kids, but it's really a gendered phenomenon uh young men are much more likely to live at home than young women um, you know there's a significant percentage point difference and uh as I say, too, with incarceration and mass incarceration um of felons and ex-felons in America are men, Um, sadly, not surprisingly. And um, so, you know, it cuts across a lot of populations. It's not just the working class. It really cuts across the socioeconomic spectrum. And it's not limited to any race or ethnicity or age. So, and in terms of talking about economics and cultural factors, uh, I mean, that could elicit a very long answer, but, you know, it kind of gets to the, that dichotomy kind of gets to the notion of, have these men been pushed out of mainstream America, or have they dropped out? And to some extent, this is a political argument, you know, that they've been pushed out tends to be the argument uh, to the extent it's it's brought up at all by progressives dropped out tends to be an argument of conservatives and there are bits of truth to both uh, the economy has really not been good for men for many years male wages have stagnated since the 1970s and the bottom sixty to eighty percent of uh, working men have seen their wages decline over the decades and more sharply since 2000. Um, so the economic situation isn't good, and many of these issues apply to to women as well as men. I mean, there are proliferation of bad jobs, low wages, without benefits, etc. Uh, but the cultural piece also plays into this, Um, You know, many would say there's some deterioration in the work ethic, some uh, decline in the sense of responsibility among men. And uh, you see a lot of these guys, or I saw a lot of these guys, particularly young men, you know, who just sit at home and, for example, Play online games there are about fifteen million online gamers and there have been studies showing that uh, young men playing games at home uh, tend to be happier than and prefer uh, gaming to work which you know does get the issues of the working uh, work ethic and culture and responsibility uh, gosh that's a big topic. I mean, responsibility toward children, toward women, toward society. Um, I mean, there are a lot of ways that one can look at the decline of that, um, but there, uh, such things are not so easily quantifiable, obviously. So I tend to come down on it being a bit of both economics and culture. And, you know, as I say in my book, there will be, you know, some things that may antagonize progressives or be a lot of things that may antagonize conservatives, but uh, I try to tell it as it is.
1: Yeah, and I think part of how you do that is you talk about, you know, how all these men are you know simultaneously dealing with these economic factors and cultural factors but also sort of within this broader umbrella of our changing conversation around masculinity itself right so how do how do these men interpret or experience maybe would be a better way to put it the changes in masculinity or at least how we talk about masculinity
0: yeah, I mean that's a huge issue Kyle. and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, the, many talk about traditional or toxic masculinity and uh you know versus some more progressive manhood 2.0 as some call it. And you know, a lot of men feel kind of caught between, you know, two sets of norms and values. Um a lot of guys said to me, You know, and even pretty progressive guys who called themselves feminists, you know feminism has done a lot for women, but you know it's left me and a lot of men confused at best and angry at worst and um you know the while there's evidence that good evidence that many younger men are becoming more um Bigger believers in gender equity when it comes to parenthood, workplace, uh, you know, taking care of the home. There are also interesting studies that show a troubling persistence of traditional or toxic masculinity. Uh, for example, there was one survey I found particularly interesting. They surveyed young men, I think under twenty-five men, and asked you know what were their beliefs about various gender and gender equity issues, and a majority came out with very progressive answers, you know believing in equity, believing that uh you know women uh, you know should should not be oppressed, should have all the rights should of of men should not be uh, sexually assaulted uh, you know all the awful things that that men have done to women but then you know when asked how they behave a majority fell back to a traditional kind of masculinity uh, like for example you know if you were in a situation where you were hurting would you cry no. If you were in a situation where somebody uh challenged you to a fight, would you fight? Yes. Um if you were in a situation where, you know, for heterosexual men uh you know could hook up with many women, uh, yes, they do that. So you know, we're kind of living in this sort of limbo land between uh, traditional masculinity and the new masculinity. And as I say, a lot of men are struggling with that. This and at the worst. And you know, a lot of men are angry at women, and they talk a lot about the. The proliferation of misogyny on the internet. Uh, you know we've certainly seen uh, hate crimes by so-called incels or involuntary celibates. And you know there's some pretty fri- fringe women hating men out there. So uh, a long answer to your question, but a lot more could be said about uh, the state of masculinity today.
1: Sure. And, you know, one thing that I think would be useful touching on is sort of how does this, you know, spectrum of confusion to anger sort of translate into the relationships that these men get into?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, too, Kyle. It, um, you know, we've seen marriage rates decline significantly over the last 40 to 50 years. Um you know, only about half of adult Americans are married. Um, Of course, meaning women as well as men. But the statistic I mentioned earlier about the number of uh, children born uh, outside of marriage going up so sharply creates a lot of troubling problems. I mean, there are a lot of young men and women who uh, either feel they don't have the resources to get married or they don't think too much about birth control or they just kind of drift in and out of relationships and you know children result from these and most of these so-called fragile families tend to fall apart within a few years Uh, cohabitations don't tend to last and, you know, it's mostly men who are kind of on the outs with this. I mean, not that the flip side of the huge number of single moms struggling to make ends meet um, is an enormous problem, but, you know, these men uh, you know, don't see their children uh, the mother of their child, you know, may quickly move on to another boyfriend who they also have children with, and that boyfriend doesn't want the father of the, his children coming around. So, you know, it becomes a very complicated situation. And then, you know, the other piece of, of the relation, I mean, there are a number of pieces of the relationship story is in the whole dating world. Um, I mean, I think a lot of good has come from online dating. It's obviously connected a lot of people, people who sincerely, men and women, want love and companionship. But it's also made for this kind of shopping mentality, uh, particularly by men, that they just kind of run through women and the whole tinder culture of you know just going uh looking for sex and i think it's been very deleterious and i heard stories from women that you know guys on tinder will say you know they'll go from how are you to <laughs> within 30 seconds uh You know, would you like to have sex? (laughs) And and I don't think that's a great model for relationships. And and hookups are another piece of that. Uh, While some people would argue that you know women are as into hookups as men, uh, I tend to believe that you know hookups are worse for women and. you know, this is another form of male exploitation of, of women.
1: And this next question I, I think is a bit unfair because I think this could be its own separate project. But, you know, we kind of mentioned this group before and sort of how the Internet factors into this. But, you know, what, is, what exactly is happening to millennial men who find themselves on the sideline?
0: Right. Right. Um, a lot of that starts with, of course, of course, childhood, boyhood. And we've seen a lot of evidence that's been widely publicized that boys are doing less well than girls academically. Um, there have been some studies saying that there may be a tiny bit of teacher bias. But still, boys are doing less well. They have more behavior problems. Uh, and again, some might point to, you know, the decl- decline of recess or PE where, you know, presumably boys could get out their uh, uh, Desire to, to be active and roughhouse. house um, But you know, then it moves on to, to higher education where it's now about 58% of college students and college graduates are are women so you know where are the men and again some of this plays into the issue of dating and mating a lot of women say that, uh, that there're no good men out there or you know uh, if they want to find a man they're kind of trading down which um you know is is troubling to say the least and uh so you have a lot of millennial men really retreating uh the fact that so many are not working as i say some is an artifact of the Great Recession, and many of them coming of age during the Great Recession. But it can't entirely be attributed to that, as we're now 10 years out. And um, you know, the very fact that there is evidence that a lot of young men don't want to work, and are being taken care of by parents, being, being taken care of by women in their lives, you know, or to some extent being taken care of by uh, our weak safety net.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, this next question I-, I thought kind of stood out to me in terms of how you wrote this chapter. But, um, you know, you, we've talked about um, how these, you know, fragile families can, you know, tend to fall apart but you also talk about fathers without children, or sort of men mm-hmm. without children. So, what what are these men? What are, what are their experiences?
0: Yeah, that is an excellent point because you know typically the conversation has about been about children without fathers and single mothers, but there's not been a lot of attention to who are the single fathers. Uh, or the missing fathers, and why they're missing. And, uh, you know, there are about uh, 9 to 10 million fathers of minor children, um, uh, you know, about a quarter of, of fathers in America, a little over, who are not, not with their children, do not see their children on a regular basis or at all. And... Um, you know, for a lot of these these guys, um, you know, we've long heard the phrase, you know, deadbeat dads, and of course there are a lot of pretty <laughs> disreputable guys who just disappear and don't take responsibility for their kids. But there's also huge evidence that there are a lot of dead broke men who simply can't Pay child support, and because they can't pay child support, you know, they can't can't see their children. And you know, there's some evidence of uh, women kind of gatekeeping, keeping men away from their children, particularly in those kinds of instances I mentioned earlier about you know a mother who's moved on to another man. Uh, you know, not wanting the father to come around, and you know, the big piece to me is that a lot of these fathers are really suffering. I mean, they really—they're really hurting by not seeing their children. And you know, I talked to men across the class ladder from you know some upper middle class men who weren't seeing their children, who, when starting to talk about it, broke down crying, to um, a fatherhood group of mostly Af- African-American men, where um, you know a lot of these guys seemed pretty tough. But when they were asked to tell their stories about why they're not seeing their children, how they feel about their children, you know, many of them broke down crying, too, that, you know, they wanted to be in their children's lives. And, you know, I think we've got a lot wrong in terms of, well, not only custody issues, um, although that's changing somewhat with the presumption of joint custody in many states, but the whole issue, again, as I suggested, is less divorce than these fragile families that fall apart. And, you know, men really don't have the recourse to, you know, be involved with their children. Um, you know, not uh, not that the moms aren't struggling terribly and tend to be quite poor and low-wage jobs also. Right. But those are issues we're not dealing with.
1: No, I, I would, you know, I would agree that it was important to, you know, point those issues out. And I think this next chapter I want to talk about, you know, I, I'm not sure this is how it will play out, but I feel like it could turn into a very underrated chapter because I think it is really important. But you talk about sort of how these men deal with health, like not only physical health, but mental health. So how, how are these you know, men on the sidelines dealing with health?
0: Well, it's a very important issue. Um, you know, by so many metrics, men are doing less well in terms of health. Uh, you know, of course, men have life expectancies five years less than uh, than women on average. Um, we've seen in the last two years that overall American life expectancy has declined, but that's been accounted for almost entirely by white men. Life expectancy for all other populations has been edging upward. Um, But there are a lot of um, issues for men uh, that are between kind of health and and mental health issues. Um, There's, of course, been a lot of talk about the opioid epidemic in recent years. But less attention to how gendered that is. Uh, men are twice as likely to die of opioid overdoses, heroin overdoses, alcohol poisoning. And men are also three and a half times more likely than women to commit suicide. And there, there are other health factors that have been on the rise for men, uh, like hypertension, uh, lower back pain, that are kind of puzzling in um, in the 21st century. And um, many of your listeners undoubtedly know the pioneering work by Princeton economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton who talk about deaths of despair and this is where kind of issues of masculinity and mental health sort of come together traditional masculinity says that you know I should be tough I should be stoic I shouldn't admit that I have a problem I shouldn't admit that I'm sad or depressed yet Clearly, a lot of men are sad and depression, depressed. I mean, there have been some surveys showing like a doubling from about nine to twenty percent who admit uh, that they have been sad on a chronic basis. Uh, but you know, then then there are also. I mean, these issues of loneliness, which which are huge. Um, the former Surgeon General uh, under President Obama, Vivek Murthy, said that loneliness was the biggest public health epidemic in America. And that, too, is very gendered. Um, you know, when men are asked who's their best friend, they'll often say their wife or their girlfriend or their partner. When women are asked the same question, they'll rattle off a number of women's names, and uh you know it would be funny if it weren't so sad that you know women are likely to have uh maintained close friendships, have confidants, you know the guys that most men hang out with you know tend to be beer buddies, sports buddies, not exactly confidants. And women are better at forming groups and maintaining groups. Um, you know one example that I discovered while researching this book was you know in in one small community of about one square mile radius um, I found a divorced mom's group that had about seventy five women in it. Well, then I turned around to look for a divorced dads group. Well, the closest thing I could find was a group that included two men who lived about 25 miles apart. So, you know, men aren't getting together and they need to get together. They need to, you know, make deeper friendships, engage in, you know, participate in groups. And... You know, in a sense, that used to be much more true with a lot of fraternal organizations like the Rotary, the Elks, the Lions, etc., which were male, organ- even, even labor unions were traditionally male organizations. All of those have declined precipitously. and. In the case of fraternal organizations or civic organizations, the courts rightfully forced them to admit women in the late 80s. And I had a lot of guys tell me the only reason this Rotary chapter is surviving is because the women are doing all the work. But uh, men need to have groups, they need to have friends, they need to have confidants.
1: Yeah, and I think that kind of bridges nicely into your. Uh, chapter on sort of civic engagement so you know you mentioned sort of the the different clubs and uh, fraternal organizations but you know what is what does it mean for these men to not be civically engaged
0: well you know for some it's just a retreat uh, a retreat into loneliness or you know Kind of not having contact with their communities, but for a lot of them, it means anger. Turning, you know, just turning their loneliness and depression and feeling that they've been victimized, whether by the economy or women or government or many, you know, set the system. um, That uh, you know, this this turns into the kind of political. Anger that you know we've sadly seen so much of in America in recent years and just in the last week um, and you know there there most of your listeners probably know Robert Putnam's famous book, uh, Bowling Alone, in which he essentially argued that you know people don't do things together anymore. Uh, You know, as Alexis de Tocqueville had argued back in the 1840s, one of the great things about America, one that he marveled about, was Americans were so good at forming groups. Well, you know, as I mentioned in relation to your earlier question, A lot of those groups have kind of fallen apart and we've become more atomized, more isolated, and men in particular. And, you know, just getting to the political piece as we're approaching the midterms, you know, men always used to dominate political campaigns, be the candidates, and it's, it's great and good that there are a lot of women candidates and elected officials, and there should be more. I mean, the the countries that mandate that at least 40% of, uh, you know, members of parliament should be, uh, you know, of each each sex, um, I think makes sense. But, you know, the interesting thing that's happened in recent years is that, Women have become more more active politically than men, and you know, as canvassers, as organizers, um, and then then you come down to you know this very troubling gender voting gap, which in the twenty sixteen election was twenty four percentage points, uh, which is huge, and. From Jimmy Carter on back, uh, men and women were pretty much likely to vote in the same way. And if anything, women were more conservative than men, as you go into the middle of the 20th century. So, you know, you have a lot of men who are angry, uh, you know, generally on the right, but... uh, a lot who were angry period. I mean, you saw it in the Bernie constituency as well as the, the Trump constituency.
1: Right. And I, I think one of the important parts of your book, um, and you kind of touch on this throughout is this is by no means the majority of men. So one question that kind of came to mind, um, you know, I think a slightly unfair question yet again, but, you know, if somebody reads this book and, you know, kind of reads over these different factors that play into why men are on the sidelines, but not the majority of men, they might say, okay, but just so what, right? It's not the majority. Why, why do we need to care? So I think you make a very compelling argument for why we should care, but what would you say to those
0: folks? Sure, sure. I mean, it's true that four out of five men are either doing okay or doing very well um but you know the fact that a lot of people a lot of men aren't doing well, I often use the the analogy that um you know, if poverty is worse in Congo or Bangladesh than it is in America, it doesn't mean that we don't look at poverty in America. So, you know, if still on average women get the shorter end of the stick in America, it doesn't mean that we don't look at men who are struggling and having problems. And many of those men's problems have direct and usually negative impacts on women and children and the society and the economy in terms of lost, uh, labor and productivity and output. So,
1: yeah, no, I think, I think that's spot on because I, I think that it is an important conversation to have that. I think you point out that, you know, as a society or as a country we might not be having, um, and I think one of the parts at, toward the end of the book that were really interesting, um, and again, it kind of goes back to the point you made earlier about how some of the things you say are going to anger progressives and some are going to anger conservatives, right? But you kind of make an argument for how do we get these men back in? So what would that look like? And what what should we do about these men?
0: Well, in my last chapter, I talk about Uh, a number of policy solutions, a number of cultural solutions, so to speak. Um, The problem is that, you know, many of these solutions are particularly hard, and especially hard, you know, you look at policy, nothing's getting done in Congress, things are getting done at the state level, Um, and in terms of culture, we've Uh, the kind of culture war has sort of solidified people on one side or another. But, you know, in terms of policy interventions, I think, you know, we need to support uh, getting more men into, um, you know, non-four-year college training um, and into retraining uh, and, and into jobs and you know we need to have jobs pay better for men and women Uh, you know as we've seen inequality increase we've seen the minimum wage decline in real terms over the decades Um, but you know I think there are a whole bunch of other policy things, um, you know, one that would be good for both men and women would be to have paid parental leave. I mean, we don't have any paid leave in America, but there are countries like Sweden, I believe, where they give 16 or 18 months of paid parental leave, but it has to be split between the fathers and mothers. Again, you know, one has to take at least 40% of the leave, and if they don't, they just lose that leave. So I think, you know, incentives like that, nudges like that, uh, which, you know, would benefit everyone, including children, um, you know, would help men see their role as parents, as fathers, uh, a bit differently if they, you know, have the time to bond with their their children uh, when young, um, or when uh, infants and toddlers. And, you know, there are, oh gosh, a host of other things. I mean, in terms of all the internet misogyny, I think we really need to crack down. Um, I mean, certainly there's been about a lot of deserved backlash against Facebook and other social media in the last few years. But you know, we need to, um, I think, put a lot more effort into really criminalizing a lot of the um, the hateful speech, things like revenge porn as well. And, you know, when I talk about the health issues, uh, we really need a federal office of men's health. Not that an agency, a new agency is the silver bullet, but, you know, because of, um, you know, feminism, which... Uh, There have been a a whole series of federal offices of women's health created since about 1990, and I think this has been great. One might question why there are five federal offices of women's health, why they're not consolidated. The biggest one is in NIH. But there's no office that there's no kind of dedicated research Looking at some of these men's health issues that that I've talked about and talked more about in in the book, um, and then in terms of cultural pieces, um, a lot of men said they wouldn't take available jobs because you know they were women's jobs, stereotypically women's jobs like uh, home health aides. Child care uh, preschool teachers, elementary school teachers, uh, even nurses, and uh, you know I think we need to culturally make it acceptable for uh, for men to be in in these jobs push push men into these jobs. Um, I think national service would help. Men and women, and the country at large, uh, whether it's universalizing Americorps or, you know, having the choice between military or civilian service, but you know these are, are um, circumstances that create bonds between people, and you know we really need more bonds among uh, men and women. Uh, or among men, sorry, uh, men and women as well, But um, and the whole issue of masculinity, I think we have to take on in a way that is sensitive to the fact that men are struggling with it, and while the Me Too movement has been very important in calling out sexual assault and harassment, um, the fact that, you know, a lot of men just don't know how to act around women these days because of these cultural changes, I think we need to be kind of more sensitive to that and, you know, not just blame men as a, you know, as a class. <laughs> um, and I could, you know, I could go on, but... um you know I think just reinstilling uh kind of basic values in the schools, I know this is kind of controversial uh teaching values, but you know basic decency, basic manners, kindness um, responsibility and um and even you know teaching or preparing people. To be better parents, um, whether they're you know in an enduring marriage or relationship, or particularly in relationships that break up marriages or fragile family relationships that break up, so there are a lot of things that can and should be done, and there are a lot more that I mention, but you know a lot of these are anything but easy i mean changing ideas about masculinity like changing ideas about many things is extremely hard
1: right but i I do think that you know you make a really good argument and sort of lay out different ways that we could bring these men in and why that's important right going back to that previous question of why should we care well we kind of you kind of lay out very nicely in terms of here are all the negative effects of, you know, these men being pushed to the sidelines and here are some things we should do about it. Um, and I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, so I kind of want to leave our listeners with, with these two last tidbits. Um, if you were to have readers, you know, pick up your book over a long weekend and sort of go through it, what would be the one takeaway you hope they would, they would get from your book?
0: Well, I think, Kyle, gosh, it's hard because I think there are a lot of them, but I think it's that the plight of many men is important to look at. That um, gender studies should not just be about women, that it has to for men's sake and women's sake. Uh look at men too, whether these struggling men or men, you know, higher up the left doing better. Um so I think that's maybe the major takeaway. But as I say it's hard to pull out one takeaway.
1: Right. Right. Um, And if people really enjoy your book, which I'm sure they will, um, do you have any other book recommendations for them if they want to sort of dive deeper into this topic or sort of adjacent topics?
0: Sure, sure. Um, You know, one book um, that came out earlier this year uh, called The Boy Crisis by Warren Farrell looks at you know, some of the problems affecting boys. And I think uh, that's an important book. Um, The uh, Princeton sociologist, uh, Catherine Eden, who was part of the Fragile Families study, it's a longitudinal study that's been going on now for 20 years, Uh, She wrote a very good book called Doing the Best That I Can, which is largely about poor men, Uh, and she argues that these men, you know, are not (laughs) just uh, deadbeats, uh, good-for-nothings, but, you know, they try as hard as as they can under bad circumstances and then oh gosh, there are a raft of books about fatherhood out there. Um I mean it's hard to hard to recommend a best book, and many of them go back a ways. Um and some are somewhat polemical, like um, you know, David Blankenhorn's book and the uh, 1990s Fatherless America, a good book by Ross Park and Armand Bratt, and the early 20th century, Throwaway Dads. Um, yeah, I think books about fathers and fatherhood uh, are extremely important, and probably new books about fatherhood are needed, in fact.
1: Yeah, and I think those are all really good recommendations, Um, and I encourage our listeners yet again to to check out uh, Dr. Yarrow's new book, Man Out, Men on the Sidelines of American Life. Dr. Yarrow, thank you so much for this conversation.
0: Thank you, Kyle. Uh, It's been a pleasure.